0: Good morning, Merry Christmas, want to uh, take a moment uh, to welcome the kids who are in here with us. I know that uh, uh, they are uh, doing their best with their coloring to uh, to stick with us uh, as we wanted to bring the whole family together for worship. And so uh, if you're guests with us, we've got uh, all the kids kind of first grade and up in here with us as we continue to provide our preschool ministries for the little ones, but uh, particularly on days where we celebrate communion or particular days of significance in the life of the church, we want to bring them in. So I want to take a moment just to welcome the little guys here with us and uh, to share a little bit um, directly to you before we get started this morning. Um, I love Christmas now. I haven't always loved it. Some of the stuff about Christmas uh, I wrestle with, but one of the things that I've always appreciated was uh, the meal on Christmas Day. Um, and it was always just massive and, and wonderful things came out of my mother's kitchen that did not come out the other 364 days of the year. And, uh, and so you look for it. Uh, my mom has uh, this gingerbread she makes it's amazing. And then uh, pecan pies and pecan pies with chocolate fudge in them, which is just ridiculously good. Um, all sorts of things that come out of that. Now, here, here's the deal. As a kid, let me tell you how Christmas works. Uh, you go run and play in the yard. So my brother and I would wear our Dallas Cowboys uniforms. We'd be outside in the yard playing football. And then at some point, we would be called into the house for dinner. Now, we'd have to change clothes because for Christmas lunch, a Dallas Cowboys uniform is not deemed appropriate. I tend to disagree, uh, but you do what you're told when you're the smallest guy in the house. Uh, so we'd sit down for this amazing lunch, and then magically... All of this glorious food appeared on my plate. I mean, I don't know how it got there. I don't know what happened to get it there. I just know that I was playing football, and now I'm not, and they're serving me awesomeness on a plate. No idea of what it took to get that. No idea of who took time to make the gravy and and cook the ham and glaze it and the turkey that went with it, because we always did the turkey-ham combo. No idea of any of the preparation that it took. What we find when we look at the Christmas story is that more so even than the Christmas meal and all the shopping and everything that goes into Christmas preparation is that God had been preparing the world for centuries for this day. And in one of our favorite books at our home, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Scriptures begin kind of its overview of the Bible. This is what it tells us of the Scriptures. It says, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of a puzzle, the the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. Then suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. The child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the beginning. Then we jump into the story of the Bible. And that's what I want to do with you this morning as we think about the theme of Advent, of preparation, of preparing for this coming King to see how for centuries God had prepared creation to receive Him. The story begins with God created in the heavens and the earth. And they're perfect and beautiful. And God looks at it and He says it's very good. And He places Adam and Eve, His own creations built not only to relate to Him, but to relate to one another. And He places them in the garden to tend and care for Him. To exercise dominion over it, to creatively manage the created world in a way that would honor God, in a way that would please him. But just like you and I, they 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 had a tendency to turn from God. And so they believed that they were offered a promotion, that God was in some sense holding out on them, and that there was more to be had, and, and they followed the serpent as he tempted them. You see, God had only given them one rule, which was there was a, a tree in the middle of the garden that would give them the knowledge of both good and evil. And the rule was don't eat from that tree. Well, the serpent convinced them that that in some way eating that tree was robbing them, not eating from that fruit was robbing them of something. And so they rebelled against God and they turned to sin. And at that moment, all of creation is is polluted with sin. And God hands out judgment to the people based upon their sin. He said, I told you that if you eat of this fruit, you would surely die. You're going to die. To dust you will return. But even in the midst of this, we see God being gracious because He doesn't kill them instantly and start over. He allows them to continue. He allows them to bear children. He protects and watch over them. And He gives them in the midst of this judgment a promise because He turns to the serpent. And in His judgment of him in Genesis 3.15, He tells him that one day there will come a child of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and destroy him. And so even in the midst of the judgment of sin, you see glimpses of what God is planning to do. In Genesis 12, God moves forward in the progression of this plan of redemption. And He he calls Abraham. And He says, Abraham, you are going to be mine. And your people will be my people. And so He makes in Genesis 12, 1-3, this promise with Abraham that honestly functions as the outline of the rest of the Bible. He says, Abraham, I am going to turn your family into a great nation. And I'm going to bless them. And through you, all nations will be blessed. Through your offspring. Now, Galatians 3, Paul tells us that offspring isn't plural. It's one offspring that is to come. And so the story is laid out. That there's one who will come from Abraham's family. That as God establishes Israel as a nation and places them in the land that He's promised them, that one will rise up who will be a blessing to all the nations, to all families on the face of the earth. And the story goes on. The descendants of Abraham find themselves in great need in the midst of a great famine. But God had, through their own sins, strategically placed Joseph in Egypt to be able to manage the food and take care of them so that the promise lives on. And I want you to see in Genesis 49 what had to be the most awkward family reunion ever. When, when Jacob gathers his sons together, he starts with the oldest in Genesis 49... Verse 8, we'll read. He starts with the oldest and he speaks to Reuben and says, Reuben, you're a little unstable and shady. And then he looks to Simeon and he says, Simeon, you're a little angry all the time. And then he turns to Judah and says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies and your father's son shall bow down before you. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. So you see, the promise kind of clarified a little bit that there's this king that's going to rise from the tribe of Judah. And that he will reign and rule forever. until all the praises and obedience of the peoples is His. The story rolls on. God establishes the people of Israel in their own land, in the land that He promised them. But, but they, like us, are forgetful of God's blessings, and they turn from Him. And so God's judgment comes upon them. Eventually, they're scattered amongst the nations. They're not a light to the Gentiles. They're not a light to the world. They're, they're, they're a mockery. They're a joke. And yet God, even in the midst of all of their sin, even in the midst of turning from Him and worshiping idols, even to the point that they that they sacrifice to them, God doesn't turn His back. Because of His great love and His faithfulness to His steadfast promise, He, he restores them. And so from the ends of the earth, He begins to bring them back. And he, he does it through strange means, through pagan kings who don't honor God, end up financing the whole project. Giving permission and resources and, and money to send back the people of God to Israel they are established there. In the midst of that exile, the prophet Micah speaks. And he reminds us of the promise that would come. In Micah chapter 5, it says, You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days, and therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of their brothers shall return to the people of Israel and the Lord shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord is God and they shall dwell secure for for now He shall be great to the ends of the earth and He shall be their peace. You see that? Here's this promise again of the ends of the earth and this ruler coming. This ruler who cares for his people like a shepherd cares for a flock. And he, he points to us the city of Bethlehem. If you go back to Numbers chapter 23, you'll find the, the story is even clearer of what the signs will be. In Numbers twenty three seventeen, the prophet Balaam, who's not a believer, who's a pagan prophet, paid by their enemies to say uh, curses on them. God won't allow it. And he stands to speak and he says, and he came to him and behold, he was standing, oh, I gave you the wrong verse there. My apologies. In, in, in Balaam's oracle, He looks out upon the people of Jacob and he says, And behold, I see him now, but far, not near, a star will rise in Jacob. And he will rule and crush the heads of the Midianites. You see this depiction coming. The city of Bethlehem, a star rising over a coming king. And as as the story moves on, God continues to prepare more and more. And and all of creation is is getting set up for the coming of this King. Then He calls a particular man who will pave the way for Him. If you go to Luke chapter 1, you'll find the story of John the Baptist's birth. He was Jesus' first cousin. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 5, it tells us this, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, "...of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years." Now I would say this, if you're new to reading the Bible, any time the Scriptures point out to you someone had no children because they were barren, God is usually about to do something significant. Anytime you see that, something amazing is about to happen. So this family, they, they're righteous, they love the Lord, they've been praying for years, they have been unable to have children. And what's about to happen? Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when the division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. We stop there for a moment. Every time in the Bible that someone sees an angel, the angel has to tell them, Don't be afraid. So immediately, if your concept of an angel is a cute and cuddly baby with wings, I want you to understand, you got that from Hallmark, not the Bible. Every time someone sees an angel, they're afraid and the angel says, don't, don't be afraid. I've come with good news. So what's the news? It says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And he will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many... Of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, later on, as John is a man and his ministry begins, he's then questioned about his ministry. The Gospel of John, chapter one, he answers a few questions of those who would inquire about what he is doing. In verse 19, it says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who send us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord as the prophet Isaiah had said. So when John the Baptist provides his answer of who are you and why are you doing what you're doing, as he preached there in the Jordan, he said, I'm the one that Isaiah foretold who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 in there. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, give us a glimpse of what it is God is doing, what He's prepared for the people. He says, speak comfort to my people. Comfort says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain." And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I love this. He describes the preparing of the way for a coming king, for the very presence of God with them. He says, this will happen. The Lord has spoken. There's a certainty and a confidence in this promise where God says, if you doubt me, remember, I've spoken. I've said this. I will do it. God has done everything He can to pave the way. And then the Scriptures look at all of this preparation. And in Galatians 4, verse 4, it says that in the fullness of time, Christ came to be born to redeem those under the law. In the fullness of time. When everything was ready, when all the preparation was completed, when everything was just right, He sends his son into the world and 1 Timothy says that he came into the world to save sinners. On a mission, on a rescue mission for sinful men and women like us. Who had rebelled just as Adam and Eve, just as the Israelites who had forgotten God's hand and his blessing, who had turned from him over and over and over again. And he is patient and he sends his son to endure the punishment that we deserve when the time was just right. When all the preparations and, and adjustments and planning had been made. And so after centuries of preparation, the child is born in Bethlehem. And how he got there is an amazing story. You see, Jesus' family wasn't really living in Bethlehem at the time. They lived in Nazareth. And to get to Bethlehem was a difficult journey for a pregnant woman. And and, in the amazement of it, Caesar Augustus, unknown to him as a puppet of Almighty God, as he sits from his throne and says, let's force everyone to go back to their family home to be counted. Unknowing what God had in plan, that he was part of God's plan to work out the the completion of all of these preparation and get Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem on that day. Amazing how we in our own delusions of authority and power and grandeur can do nothing but the bidding of God. And so, as Caesar issues a decree in the backwoods of the empire somewhere in the desert, a man and a woman head out on a treacherous journey to have a baby in Bethlehem. And a star rises over them, just as the prophets had foretold. And the angels come and they announce His birth, but they they don't go to the palace to announce it. They don't send out uh, birth announcements to all the wealthy and prominent families in Israel. As you would expect when when a king is born. I mean, apparently there's someone whose family is kind of royal in England who's pregnant, and everyone in the world except me probably knows all the details about it. But here comes the King of all creation. And with the exception of a few shepherds outside of a small town and some men who traveled for a long time from the east who were probably not even believers in the gospel or the God of the Old Testament. Somehow, some way, they got the news and they came to see a king. The strangest traveling entourage ever. Shepherds and, and then wealthy astronomers from the east. The local mayor doesn't show up. All that preparation, all that, all that work and sending an army of angels to announce His birth for a few shepherds and three astronomers to show up to the party. I mean, does that sound like a great guest list? Largely unnoticed by the world. His birth was unnoticed. In His life, He had regional notoriety. He was despised and forgotten in His death but worshipped around the world because of His resurrection. This Jesus. You see, there's more to the story than just His birth. We said last week that the birth of Christ is is much like D-Day in the European war in World War II. It's not the end, it's the beginning. It's the, the acceleration of something very big that's happening as the Kingdom of God advances throughout this place. If you notice, the promises that we looked at of this coming king were were quite global in their perspective. That all flesh will see it, Isaiah 40 says. Genesis 12 says that all nations, all peoples will be blessed through him. In Genesis 48, Jacob prophesied that he would rule and that the nations would give him obedience. And, And yet, that hasn't occurred yet. And what that tells us is that this story is still in progress. That it hasn't come to its final resolution. And that there's work to be done. That ultimately He's coming again. And just as God had been preparing creation for centuries for His birth, God is now preparing creation for His return. And as God had prepared the world for His birth, He had enlisted men and women who would be faithful to Him. He had enlisted men like John the Baptist who would proclaim His coming to prepare the people for them. He had enlisted men like, like Joseph who would keep the family line going. He had enlisted men like Judah who would rule and King David who would establish a kingdom and destroy their, their enemies. Now, the centuries He enlisted men and women, some strange if you look at the, gene- the genealogy of Jesus, you find uh, women of ill repute. Of questionable background. You find Ruth and Boaz, or Naomi and Boaz. You find all of these people that are, that are not what you'd expect a great king to come from. But God has used them to prepare the world for His coming. And that's the beautiful thing for us. Is that much preparation is still to be had for his coming again, and that God has called average, everyday men and women to be a part of that preparation? As Second Peter chapter two, or chapter three, verse twelve says, that we to long for that day and hasten its coming, and that's the invitation to us. And so here's the question: What do we do to be prepared? What do we do? In order to answer that question, it's appropriate maybe to to read the Bible's depiction of what that day is like when He returns. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former way of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, murderers and immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and liars, their portion will be with the lake that burns of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, it's very tempting at Christmas to not read that last verse. But we wouldn't be honest when we talk about preparing for His coming if we didn't show you both depictions of Christ's return. Because for some of you, preparation means trusting in Him so that that judgment that's described at the latter part of the verse isn't a reality for you. And you get to experience the the joy and rejoicing at the coming of the King and His kingdom. But I know that some of you came here today having never trusted in Christ. Maybe you went to church, maybe you got confirmed, but you never placed your faith in Him. You, you, you never looked at yourself and understood that you were a sinner before a holy God deserving of judgment. And rather than placing your faith in, in religious activity or maybe your own efforts to get better, actually just turn to Jesus and trusted that His death on the cross was enough to forgive you. That He had paid for it. And my invitation to you is to turn and trust Him and Him alone. So that that burden of weight that you carry trying to be good enough for God can be lifted. And so that the judgment that's coming for those who reject His Son and refuse to worship Him as King and only Savior will not fall upon you. I don't want you to be unprepared for the day of His return. So my invitation to you is simply to trust Him. He is coming back. I love the words of, of Christ here. It says the one seated on the throne says these words are trustworthy and true. Write them down. Take note of that. You can put that on the record. You can quote me on this one. This is trustworthy and true. Take a note of it. Make a memo. Put it in your iPhone. It will happen. And there's a certainty here. That's what our hope at, at this Christmas time is rooted in, is a certainty that God finishes what He starts. That the manger scene, it lacks significance if it's, it's just a cuddly baby in a barn but it has all sorts of weight and promise when that child is the very Son of God who will come again and reign for eternity. So make preparations. For some of you, you're Christians, and and the call is this, to live for this Gospel. Because in the end, it's the only thing of eternal value. All, All of the promotions at work, as good as they may be, all of it. All the accolades, nice things you can have, nothing nothing wrong with any of those, but all of those, in the end, are nothing more than kindling. Some of them are really pretty kindling, but they're still kindling. And in an instant, at the return of Christ, they'll be gone. Living for the gospel and its advancement, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and that all who seek him and trust him are saved. That's the only thing of value. It's the only thing of eternal value. We live to see the gospel advance in our own lives as we submit ourselves more and more to this king who saved us. We live to see the gospel advance in the lives of our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, those around us who haven't trusted in him. We desire to experience this great joy at the return of Christ rather than this judgment. Serve him. Live for them. And lastly, I would tell you that eternity is an eternity of worship. When you read the book of Revelation, what you find is this depiction of all of the nations, men and women from every tribe and tongue and language, gathered together singing a new song to the Lord. And get ready for eternity. we gather here to sing praises to Jesus, this this is just a warm-up. In a moment after we take the Lord's table, we'll sing. And and this is preparation, this is practice for what will be our eternity. of, Of being in the presence of God as His people and He as our God forever. So we get ready. One of the ways that we stay prepared is gathering around this table. God knew that we'd be prone to forget... And so he reminds us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Scriptures give us a reminder of what this table is about and why we gather to do this. So if you're you're new with us, I want you to understand what, what, what is happening here. On the night that Christ was arrested and betrayed, he gathered with his believers and he shared a meal with them. It was part of the Passover meal, which was a normal part of their annual celebration, but He infused it with new meaning and depth that they had not understood. Jesus knew that He was about to die, and that He was about to die for our sin. And so He took that moment, and as He broke the bread during the meal, He told them that this bread symbolizes or depicts my body which is broken for you. And then after the meal, He took the cup and He blessed it. And he let them know that 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 wine, that that fruit of the vine symbolizes his blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And what what Jesus depicted in that meal was the reality that, that all of us stand before God deserving of judgment, but that Christ was on his way to die to absorb the wrath of God for our sin. So that it was paid in full, so that God looks upon those who have trusted in Christ, not with wrath or judgment. But with mercy and joy, he sees them as his sons and daughters. That this great transaction was taking place where, where Christ was going to take his righteousness and give it to us and he was going to then take our sin upon himself and do what Luther called the great exchange. Where he traded our sin for his perfect righteousness. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... The Scriptures encourage us related to this meal. Paul first tells us that he received this from the Lord. And what he also delivered to us, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. And and this is what I want you to hear this morning. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And you can't get away from that reality. That He's coming again. That all the promises are, are in, kind of in progress, but we don't have them in full. And that they're coming and that God's goodness is on its way in greater degree than we could ever imagine. To the point Revelation 21 says that there will be no more weeping or mourning and God will comfort all those who have mourned. Because death and, jo- and sadness and pain are gone. Because that old order of things, everything that we struggle with in this life has passed away. When God finally puts death to death. And we are welcomed into a kingdom of joy and gladness. where where He says that God will be with them and be their God. And they will be with Him and be His people. The overarching depiction of heaven more than than streets of gold, more than any of the other figurative language, is the reality of perfect union with God. And the complete and total satisfaction of, of all the longings of our hearts. That's why he says, he who's thirsty, let him come and drink without cost from the fountain of living water. This is not about, about needing something to drink. This is about the, the, the thirsting and longing of our souls that we can't ever seem to feel. That there's always something missing. God says, I'll end that. And along with all of that, I'll, I'll end death and suffering we'll close the funeral homes, we'll shut down the hospitals, and joy will reign forever. And God knew that every day that we went by the funeral home, every time we visited the hospital or prayed over our sick kid, that we would have a tendency to forget this great promise. And so He, in His goodness to us, says, I want you to gather and I want you to remember what I'm going to do. Christ has... Come, Christmas is here, but He's coming again. And it only gets better. It only gets better. I want to ask the men that are going to be helping with the Lord's table this morning to come forward as we pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace to us. We thank You for Your tremendous mercy that You've poured out through Your Son. And for all of the preparation that You've made for thousands of years to send Him so that He might live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins and raise again. We thank You that the process of Your kingdom advancing is still ongoing and there's still greater promises to be had. I want to pray that You would make us a people who embrace that promise today. A people who will live lives of preparation, desiring to see the Gospel advance and many more of every tribe and tongue and language, every neighborhood and subdivision and town hall come to know you that we would all be prepared on the day of judgment but I pray for those who are here who have not trusted in your son that your spirit would do a work in them even now to prepare them for that day But I pray that they would do business with you not with anyone else but that you would break their hearts to see the the weight of their sin and the hope of salvation just in trusting what Jesus did. I pray that you would enable them to stop trusting in their own righteous acts and deeds, their own good behavior, or their own efforts to fix things that they've broken. They'd stop trusting in religious activities and ceremonies, but, but rather turn to you, the God of heaven and earth who pardons endlessly pray for this time as we gather around this table that you would renew our hearts, that you would remind us of your grace, that we might walk faithfully with you, that we might delight in the fullness of what you have done and what you've yet to do this Christmas season. I pray that you would infuse all of our gatherings with, a, with, with an expectation of what you are to do through this Christ child. And that at every opportunity with friends and family that that the glory of Christ would flow forth from us in word and deed that many would be drawn to Him. We pray for that this morning. We pray that You'd be with us as we gather, as we celebrate this remembrance. In Jesus' name, Amen.